Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One of the questions I've asked on Twitter, tongue-in-cheek, was this. So should we now expect that Bill Morneau to be promoted to Minister of Veterans Affairs? Uh, going back, of course, to the time of uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, who was moved from Attorney General and Minister of Justice to Veterans Affairs by the Prime Minister when she spoke out against interference by the PMO in her doing her job. Well, on justice issues, we like to call on Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, former senior policy advisor to a federal minister of public safety, professor at Simon Fraser University. Scott's been a guest on this program for many years. Jeff Manishin, also former prosecutor, criminal lawyer with Ross and McBride in Hamilton. And there are some issues that we're going to talk to uh, Scott and uh, and Jeff about. And let's begin with this one, guys. The public inquiry that is going to happen in Nova Scotia in the mass murders which took place in April. The federal government and the Nova Scotia government was looking at doing something that was more closed shop, and people said no. Scott, why don't you start us on that? I mean, it's a very significant uh, development. The, uh, the families of the victims and a lot of people in Nova Scotia um, were outraged that there was going to be this uh, private uh, review as opposed to a public inquiry into what had actually taken place. And uh, both the province of Nova Scotia and the uh, federal government, and both of them are involved, and that's where it starts to get complex, it basically ignored um, all of the calls for a public inquiry. Um, they'd announced a three-person panel, including former Justice Minister Anne McClelland. More on that in a second. And then last week, uh, as a result of the, uh, the outcry, they reversed themselves and said, okay, well, it's going to be a public inquiry, and the, uh, which it, it's not just a, uh, a change in title. It's significant in the sense of uh, that the hearings will now be held in public. Previously, they could have been done privately, and there will be powers given to the people doing the um, uh, inquiry, like compelling witnesses to testify, you know, to get documents, things like that. And the, the focus of it has really been... I think in two areas. One is essentially how the uh, RCMP, because they're the ones who provided the local uh, policing service through the contracts to the province of Nova Scotia, how they actually responded to the shootings that were taking place. And the second one is, and I think this is the one that is frankly something very much to keep your eye on, um, how it is that this guy managed to elude or escape any kind of intervention by the police prior to this incident taking place. And that's, I think, the thing that is most controversial. And it's critically important that that be included in the mandate of this uh, new public inquiry, because if you want to get the... It's like everything else in the justice system. If you want to get the right answers, you've got to ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff, there was always a sense, and I remember speaking with a university, a Dalhousie University criminal law professor who will be joining us tomorrow on this. There was also f always a fear, in a sense, that they were going to try, the authorities were going to try to edge away from a full public inquiry. And the sense was, if we don't have a full public inquiry, we are not going to find out the information that we require. So then you had the, the about-face, the rapid about-face by both the federal and Nova Scotia governments. That wasn't necessary. They knew what people wanted a long time ago. Sure, and, and in fact, Roy, I would say this. I think they, I think, I don't think it'd be too much of an overstatement to say they were shamed or embarrassed into changing their position. And I think that's because there was a fundamental flaw in their thinking. 
the concept of review that was not going to be public really defeated the whole purpose of the exercise. Picking up what Scott says, I know that when I read about this, I didn't understand how the message as to what was going on in the community was conveyed via Twitter as opposed to something equivalent to the Amber Alert. I'm not on Twitter, so frankly, if I was living in Nova Scotia, I might never have known. But I know my phone buzzes when there's an Amber Alert. I at least have a chance to know. I don't understand how the RCMP didn't do that in terms of what warning signs they had, what they did and didn't in terms of this particular guy, why they weren't on him earlier. We'll certainly get answers in relation to that. I don't know that we'll see anything say, aha, there is the issue. But in terms of the responsibility that a police service has, when you have something that's a threat to the public and the public doesn't get informed, we go back to the Jane Doe case in Toronto years ago where Toronto Police Service was found liable for not letting the public know when there was a rapist in the neighborhood. So how they could have thought they could do this without making it public was really ill-advised. And certainly it's reassuring. One small note, too, if I read it right, it seems that the province said, well, actually, it wasn't really us. It was the federal government that didn't want to have yeah, the public Yeah, that's environment. what they said. So throw them under the yeah. bus, but maybe it's because it's the RCMP, so that's federal. Can I, may I, sound can a little I just cynical. add into that, uh, because I think that's quite significant. I can tell you that I have a number of um, ex-friends and the uh, ex-RCMP friends that I've been in touch with about this. And this is part of the complexity of this, because even though they're providing local policing, it's still a federal police agency, and in different jurisdictions, and I don't know what the specific situation is in Nova Scotia, the RCMP would be able to put up their hand and say, you can't ask us these questions because we're a federal agency and you're a provincial government. Okay, that's why it's important that the federal government was also involved in that. And i got to tell you uh, as well, I think there are legitimate concerns as to whether or not uh, the RCMP actually even had some kind of a relationship with this guy. And hello by that, I mean informant, okay? And that that may have been relevant to why they didn't act on some of the uh, information that's been put out about people notifying them about that. And interestingly about that, um, literally the day after or the same day that the federal government announced that it would be a public rev- uh, rev- uh, inquiry, guess what? One of the people who'd previously been appointed, the former uh, uh, Justice Minister, Anne McClelland, she's now said, oh, well, I don't want to be part of the review anymore. Yeah. Maybe because she doesn't yeah, want people that. seeing her, how she performs in public, because now it's going to be in public. There's a lot going on. Right. Let me move on to another, Scott, let me, let me move to, on to another story because we have a lot of territory to cover. And Jeff, I know this is one you want to specifically speak with, or speak to the Ontario Court of Appeal in a two-to-one decision concerning an Indigenous woman bringing cocaine into Canada and the sentence she received. Yes, the, the decision just came out very recently. It's a case called Her Majesty the Queen Anne Sharma. And we have a statutory minimum jail sentence for importing uh, several years back, we had the potential option of a conditional sentence, referred to as house arrest, and it was available for a wide range of offenses, assuming that there was no minimum sentence, that the potential sentence was going to be less than two years, and to give a conditional sentence wouldn't be inconsistent with the principles of sentencing. But in 2012, the Harper government did away with that for a host of offenses, offenses with minimums, offenses with punishable by 14 years or more, um, variety of categories. For this woman's case, she challenged that section that did away with the option of conditional sentencing, saying it infringed her rights to equality before the law 
under Section 15, and to fundamental justice under Section 7, two-to-one decision, the Court of Appeal agreed with that and felt she should have had the opportunity for a conditional sentence. Her circumstances were extremely sympathetic. And one of the major features with the evidence that was called was to show the significant rate of, uh, to which indigenous offenders get jail sentences in Canada and that the criminal code was amended to try and find alternatives with particular concern about not jailing indigenous or aboriginal offenders. And the effect of this law was essentially going to reinforce or exacerbate the disadvantage she had as an aboriginal offender. And that was the effect, and so a two-to-one decision, the court felt it infringed her rights to equality. It also found two-to-one that the section was overbroad. It didn't have to be this broad. To do away with it, there could have been other ways to phrase it. If you're going to do it based on what the maximum penalty is, you may have people who really wouldn't approach the maximum that might be good candidates for conditional sentences. The dissenting judge said, Scott, is this going for this? It's really up yep. to Parliament. It shouldn't be for us. All right, Scott, is this going to go to the Supreme Court? Do you think the province is going to be uh, appealing this? You know what? Her sentence is already that she got um, uh, originally from. Superior Court uh, Casey Hall back in February 2018. She's already served the sentence, so it's all theoretical. I wouldn't be surprised if the province just lets it go. But there's some complexity to this, and I'm glad Jeff mentioned the dissenting uh, uh, judgment because I think he actually, uh, uh, Justice Bradley Miller, uh, said that he would have found no charter breach and that Parliament had the right to mandate prison time for offenses regardless of who commits them. And his quote was, Parliament's legislative division may be harsh, it may even be mistaken or unwise, but it's not discriminatory. And the point of it is, I think, that um, this is an insight into, you know, what is uh, known uh, these days appropriately as judicial activism, where judges are essentially uh, deciding that they're the ones who will make the policy calls. And I very much disagree with that. But it's also the flip side of that is when... Parliament, and the Harper government had a history of this, uh, when they used you know, le- their legislative authority, what I would call for political purposes, to show that they were, oh, tough on crime. And so they did things like uh, inc- significantly increase the number of offenses for which there are mandatory minimum sentences. And right. they did add these restrictions. Charlie Angus, ethics uh, critic, member of Parliament quite for frankly, the New Democrats. You know, is actual, absolute baloney. It uh, was done in the uh, mid-90s. It's, it's just probation. The federal court uh, has judged, has ruled, Scott, that the Safe Third Country Agreement between Canada and the United States, been talked about a lot, as people cross the border, avoiding the official border crossings by doing so and claiming refugee status and asylum, the judge ruled that that agreement is unconstitutional. You say what? Well, it's, um, it's important to note that it's not just about people crossing between the ports of entry, the agreement that was entered into in 2004 and then enacted by legislation actually puts in place uh, a protocol that people who arrive from either country at a land port of entry to seek asylum, refugee status, and coming from the other country, Canada or the U.S., they're not eligible to do so and they must be returned. Okay, And that was something I've been involved in starting my days with the Canadian Police Association in the 90s, with the Ontario government. And we were never able to get the federal government on board with this, and it took a while to get the Americans. It was actually after 9-11, and on something it, it related to 9-11 incidents, that we were able to get the Americans to agree. And, you know, there's understandably, there's been controversy expressed uh, from the what are known as the uh, three eyes or the illegal immigration industry. 
the you know the lawyer, the immigration lawyers, and the refugee groups, and everything else. And there's been several court cases where they're trying to say, oh, it's not fair. America's really not a safe third country. Um, and it's been made worse. You're quite correct by this thing about the exceptions, because one of the exceptions to the agreement is it doesn't apply if you sneak into the country between a designated port of entry, which has been happening in the, uh, the thousands after... Uh, uh, but you have the federal court saying that this agreement is unconstitutional. Exactly, and it, it's just so bizarre, Roy, two things. Number one, just the evidence that the judge relied on is so weird. Um, I'll just let people know the details are in an article I wrote on Frontline Security that's on uh, the Internet. And it's just so bizarre that they picked these three cases that really, you know, don't seem to suggest anything. Um, essentially what it is is the judge concluded that the, the way the Americans reacted after these people were sent back to the United States, that that constituted a violation of their charter rights, even though they had attempted to enter Canada illegally. Oh, and by the way, that even though the two of the three of them were granted judicial stays on the removal orders and were allowed to remain in Canada where they remain today, and oh, what a coincidence, one of those orders was granted, which in effect is ruling, you know, reviewed, was granted by the judge that gave this ruling. So I think the judgment itself is just badly reached, but it's again another example of this, what I would have described as judicial activism. And I'll tell you what worries me, given the significance of this, and you and I have talked about this before, about you know Canada being perceived as a place to illegally enter. Uh, this, what concerns me with this is that this ruling was made uh, about two weeks ago, and there's been absolute silence from the federal government as to whether or not they're going to launch an appeal. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Let's move to our last segment. And, and Jeff, if you want to comment on that safe third country agreement uh, decision by the federal court, please go ahead. We have two and a half minutes. The story here, though, is that criminally charged, the criminally charged in this country, we know this, have the right to a speedy trial. Three individuals, including a convicted killer, had their drug smuggling charges stayed in Alberta over that issue because they weren't taken to trial soon enough. What are your thoughts on that, Jeff? Well, in fact, Roy, uh, it's, it didn't, that, to read that story didn't necessarily shock me. The issue is this. People have the right to be tried within a reasonable period of time. It's supposed to be 18 months from arrest to end of trial at the provincial court with an extra 12 months. So it's 30 months in Superior Court. Supreme Court of Canada made it very clear. And in a variety of cases we've seen since then, if the case takes too long to get the trial, the prosecution has not done what they needed to do in a case can be stayed. Roy, just a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court of Canada upheld a stay of proceedings in a murder case out of Quebec that took five years to get to trial. And so they said it's not simply a matter of the seriousness of the offense. This right is meant to be recognized. And so, frankly, it is something that we do see. How will that pandemic affect it? I don't think it will as much. But is the concept of the right to be tried within a reasonable period of time something that our courts across Canada have upheld and recognized? Yeah. Yeah. 20 seconds, Scott. Uh, it isn't just about a reasonable amount of time. The Supreme Court of Canada, again, in a display of judicial activism, decided that they would make the policy instead of our elected representatives, and they picked those numbers that uh, uh, Jeff has described. They arbitrarily set what those numbers should be as opposed to making that kind of a, a judgment or analysis. And that, I think, is what's a bad example of this, especially in a case like this that is as significant to public safety. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much for the time. Always good talking to you. We'll do it again. You certainly, Roy. It's a great pleasure. Good chatting again, Scott. You too, Jeff. See you. Bye. Scott New York, Jeff Manishin. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. 
And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.